Hey there, welcome to night school. A lot to say, so much to say. I'm really bursting at the seams. I'm in a heightened state. I'm excited. You know, there's a lot going on that's bothering me deeply, profoundly, but I don't feel negative. I feel excited. And uh, where to go with that? Where do I go with that thought? Uh, you know, I've been every outlet, every form of expression I have, I've been trying to express myself. And I guess that's at the heart of all of this. That's a good way to start this is that the need to express yourself is so important. And yet, so much of humanity at its worst is preventing expression. And the obvious event that happened yesterday is uh, Trumpsfeld was banished from all public platforms. And it's interesting to see the justifications for it because, you know, I reviewed what Twitter said, like the, and their interpretation, like their justification for banning him, regardless of whatever precedent they felt had been established, you know, whatever he had said in the past, like they actually cited two Twitter posts and said that they they were a call to violence. And it's interesting because I, I kind of, you know, I, I kind of took it at face value and I was like, oh, maybe he did kind of, you know, he's a very impulsive guy. And I thought, you know, oh, maybe he did say something. But when I actually looked at what he said, I was like, oh, there's no reference. There's nothing in here that could possibly be interpreted as a direct or indirect call for violence. And of course, you know, terms like violence and hate have been abstracted to the point that they are almost incomprehensible. And that's been a trend that's been going on for the last decade, maybe more, but we've really seen it develop in the last decade, where violence and hatred, which are very literal to me, those are terms that aren't really open for interpretations when you see them, but they've been abstracted. And I think in part because of the internet and the way that the internet has disconnected us from our material being. And in our material being, violence and hatred are very easy to understand. Like if you are in a situation physically, you know what violence and hatred are. But in this new world where we are disconnected from our material selves, or we ourselves are abstracted, I think these ideas become even more abstract themselves. And it was just strange because, you know, even with a, a liberal imagination, what Trumpsfeld said was not a call to violence. And he, he had released a video, too, before this, where he explicitly denounced the behavior at the Capitol the other day. And so at best, even if you were to interpret his tweets as violent, at, 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 the, at best, he has made conflicting statements. But he explicitly denounced the violence, whereas with these posts, he didn't actually call for violence at all. Specifically, all he said was that his supporters are still going to have a strong voice moving forward. And he, he was encouraging them to continue to voice, I guess, their support of him. And he also said he wasn't going to attend the Joe Obama inauguration. You know, to me, neither of those, I don't, under, you know, and, and Twitter fortunately posted their 
analysis publicly. And it's very bizarre to read that because they go through with bullet points explaining how those two posts, which I'm not exaggerating, like I'm not I'm not exaggerating. I, I rather I'm not um, maybe the opposite of exaggerating. I'm not downplaying what he said at all. Like what I just said is the gist of what he said. And it was weird to see their analysis where they're explaining how those statements were a call to violence. And I've been going off like, you know, I've been posting on Facebook, like these long rambling posts, which I know is in vain, except it's not, you know, I know there are people I'm connected to on there who have expressed to me that they are glad I'm saying what I'm saying. And that's an interesting thing, because all I'm saying and all I've said is that I'm a free speech absolutist, which I don't feel the need to go in. I don't feel the need to go in on this on this show because I feel that anybody who listens to this show is on the same page as I am. I feel that anybody who has made it this far with every night to school night and night school understands. And even if they don't agree 100 percent, they at least respect that I have a, a stance of free speech absolutism. Does that mean there aren't exceptions? You know, I mean, like anything in life, you know, there are exceptions. But the point that I'm trying to hammer home to people is that censorship should always be a dilemma. You should always feel a degree of torment inside when you censor somebody. And so I I had this discussion, you know, with people and... uh, like a guy, uh, he used to be my neighbor as well as my coworker. He responded with some pushback, and he was very respectful, and I appreciate it because I enjoy, I want pushback. I want counterpoint. I don't want people to agree with me about everything. But he used the analogy of like if somebody comes to your house and threatens your kids, and I'm like, that doesn't work for me. That's not what Twitter is. That's not what these, these online platforms are. It's not your house. It's not your kids. It's a page that you have to manually check or deliberately follow in order to see it. That's not the same as somebody coming to your house and threatening you. Again, there's this disconnect between, you know, the physical world and this new online world we live in, which isn't as new as I, it might, you know, I don't think the online world is as new as we make it out to be. I don't think we have completely understood it yet. And I think by the time we understand what this online world is, something else will have manifested, will have created something else. Uh, That's just the nature of things. We can't really understand something until it's behind us a little bit. And right now we're kind of dealing with it, even though the internet isn't new now. You know, it's relatively new in human history, of course, but it's not brand spanking new, as they say. Uh, And... uh, but we still we we haven't completely comprehended it or understood the best way to go about using it and i don't believe that censoring it is ever ideal uh but yeah like like comparing it to like somebody coming to your house and threatening your kids like i mean that's just uh it's just analogy doesn't work and uh this abstraction to a violence and hatred has just it's complicated everything in a way that is mucking everything up you know because those ideas have become wholly politicized violence and hatred have become wholly political terms when they are anything but 
because every political stance has the capacity to encourage violent behavior, to encourage hatred. They're human universals. I wish it wasn't the case, but to act like only certain groups are capable of those things. When we've seen both of those things from both ends of the political spectrum over the last nine months, over the last six months, we saw over the summer where there was a lot of violent hatred, not just violence and hatred, but violent hatred during the summer. And I'm realizing, too, that, you know, a lot of people were not exposed to the extent of that. A lot of people weren't exposed to what actually happened. And I, you know, I reviewed video footage of this stuff. This isn't me just taking, you know, propaganda from right-wing pundits. You know, this is stuff that I've seen myself, and there was a lot of violent hatred over the summer in the name of leftism. And, you know, as you as you know, if you've listened to recent episodes, you know, I in no way do I support this situation at the Capitol. In no way do I encourage that. Um, uh, but, you know, in terms of protest, like even though I didn't support what happened during the summer, you know, people's right to protest, please, I, I want you to. Whether I agree or disagree, I want you to have the right to protest. Just like I would want the people at the Capitol, whether you think they're conspiracy theorists, whether you think they're psychos, doesn't matter what you think of them. If they had simply protested, that's a different story. But of course, you know, the way things played out, uh, it's hard to support that. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, I am a free speech absolutist. Does that mean that there are no exceptions? You know, no, of course not. And it's... It's subjective, but like even if you are hosting a party and somebody is belligerent, even if they are threatening, it should still be a dilemma when you kick them out. You should still feel conflicted. It should still be sad. And so the celebration I see surrounding censorship, especially a figure like the president being censored from all public platforms, I just can't see any good coming from it. Because whether you're the president or whether you're a homeless guy holding a sign on the street corner, you know, if you censor that person, you should feel a certain level of torment, certainly not excitement, certainly not celebration. And just the overall celebration I see of censorship, you know, and it's not just censorship, it's that I'm seeing a lot of ideas, and this is from people I know, a lot of ideas from people I know that are encouraging more than censorship. They want to see a lot. They want to see real world repercussions because of someone's opinions, because of the ideas that they have. I see calls for this and we'll see what, you know, we'll see how it goes. Now that those people are in power, we will see how that goes. It doesn't bode well. It does not bode well. You know, the last few days we've seen a lot of people getting banned, a lot of people getting shut down. And and, it, and this is after years of that. You know, this has been going on gradually for years, but we are seeing just a sudden pop. Things have popped in a way uh, that uh, has brought upon a certain immediacy. And that radicalizes people. You know, that absolutely radicalizes people further. Because it's one of those things where it's like, you know, one of my big points about free speech is that when you cut someone off from expressing themselves, you no longer see what they are and you allow them to 
regrow. You allow them to regenerate in a different way that might very well be a more compelling and convincing version of the thing you're afraid of. Like if you're scared of neo-Nazis, you should actually want neo-Nazis or that way of thinking to express itself with swastikas and people LARPing as SS officers. If you're scared of neo-Nazis, you actually want them to show that that's exactly what they are. Because, uh, you know, that way, there's no mistaking it. And it gives them very little political power. It gives someone very little political power when they are holding a swastika flag or dressed like an SS officer. Because most people recognize what that is. They, they know what Nazi Germany was. And as a result of that, they have no desire to support it. Whereas if you allow that to if you allow that way of thinking to come up with new symbols, new motivations, a new way of expressing itself, it has a lot more power and it's going to attract more people. So you actually want an idea like that to express itself in obvious terms, especially using a political platform that was defeated in the 1940s and has very little chance of gaining political power using those same symbols, using the the same mode of expression that National Socialism did. But the problem with that is there is such a hysteria that things that aren't that get called that. Things that aren't that get called that, and as a result, it gets very muddy. It's not unlike Trumpsfeld getting called fascist. He gets called a fascist dictator, Yet he's a sitting president right now who has been banned from all public platforms with no repercussions. And it's not just the public platforms, that, but a significant number of influential politicians, the media, major corporations. You know, this is what the resistance is, which is funny. You know, the resistance prides itself on being some sort of grassroots movement of punk rock rebels when they have the full support and they're operating in full collaboration with corporate America, banking institutions, every university, government, military leaders, the CIA, the FBI. What kind of resistance is that? What kind of resistance is one that has pretty much every significant institution, every significant corporation on its side you know, and that just shows you, like, I mean, how far the, uh, you know, the way that rebellion has been co-opted in our country, where, you know, it was initially co-opted, where it's like, oh, you know, like, being a hippie is now marketable. You know, we saw it kind of play out in a commercial sense, where, oh, uh, people sell out. Being a hippie is commercial. Being punk is commercial. You know, we've been, people have been selling that sort of counterculture rebellion for 60 years now, maybe longer. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it was like earlier on, but speaking specifically about what it played out in the late 1960s and, uh, you know, and every counter, so-called counterculture movement since then, you know, it, it was completely co-opted commercially, but we're seeing where it's been completely co-opted politically now where the resistance is 
completely in line with all of these institutions, all of these corporations. And I mean, I think the one that really gets me is when you have the CIA and FBI on your side. <laughs> you know, it's like these guys, you know, it's like people talk about all the bad stuff they did during the civil rights movement. And now they're on your side, so they're okay. They hate Trumpsfeld too. Oh, the CIA hates Trumpsfeld. And so do I. And I'm a punk. I'm a punk rocker. I'm a rebel. And I'm such a punk punk rock rebel that I agree with the CIA. I agree with the CIA. You know, that's insane. That's insane. Doesn't matter. You know, and then and then too, if he's such a fascist dictator, how can you get away with this? If he is a fascist dictator, where's the military? Where is the military, you know, storming the offices of Twitter and Google? You know, where is that? You know, the insurrection was a bunch of, you know, pretty pitiable people, a bunch of pitiable civilians who didn't even know what to do. Like, they didn't overtake the Capitol and make demands. They went into the Capitol and they took selfies in Nancy, uh, whatever her name is, you know, I know her, I know her name. Um, but, uh, you know, they didn't do anything meaningful. They scared people, they hurt people. You know, uh, a police officer died, there's, you know, there was certainly some violence. Uh, but, you know, nothing really that, dangerous came about because of it. And even me saying that might be controversial. And I guess that gets back to one of the points I was trying to make online when I was typing about this, you know, because I I do have a desire to write. And I'm not going to start a blog, I'm not going to write a book. So what do I have? I have these social media accounts. And sometimes I like to type ideas out. And I do it, I, I type very quickly. It's not something I sit. I, I think a lot about. It's just all kind of. It's the, it's the same as what I do here, except it's in words. Uh, well, these are words too, but it's you know it's written out. But being a free speech absolutist is not controversial. That's a point that I'm trying to hammer home. What is controversial is censoring someone, and even if it is necessary censorship, because you have to admit what you're doing. If you censor somebody, you have to admit that you are censoring somebody. And as I said to that guy I was kind of having a soft debate with, I said, you know, I have the same dilemma. Like if I have to block somebody online, if I have to like, quote unquote, unfriend somebody, it's still a dilemma for me, even if I think it's necessary, but I'm not, I'm not in denial about what it is. It's still a form of censorship. Like I had to block an old boss of mine because he had added me on Facebook while I worked for him, and it didn't seem to be a problem at first. And then one day he asked me about something I had posted, which was something funny. Like I had made a joke, and he he was like, what's up with that? And then I was like, oh, okay, this is a problem, and now I have to block him without letting him know. Not unfriend him, but just make it so he can no longer see anything I post. Uh, but it was that was a dilemma for me, even though it was a necessary act of censorship, you could say. It was still a dilemma, and I think it's controversial anytime you stop somebody from being able to express themselves or being able to see something. It should always be controversial to censor somebody. And so when I see people celebrating that, especially seeing the president get censored on every single platform, 
every single online platform. And not just that, because I don't know if people are aware of this, but there are even other platforms that are more sympathetic to Trumpsfeld. And we're seeing where Google is removing those apps from their Google Play Store. Apple did it. So we're seeing where it's not simply that people are being removed from these platforms. It's that even when platforms are allowing him, those platforms are made inaccessible. You know, they're removed from basically the market. So this goes deep. You know, this goes deep. And, you know, if you feel like it's funny because too, because, you know, the left for so many years was anti-corporate, anti-commercial, anti, you know, the attitude of the left was always that the institutions, the corporations are not going to ever act in your interest. But then when they wield raw power that lends itself to leftist ideology, and not just lends itself to leftist ideology, which has been going on for a long time. It's been going, a lo- going on as long as tech companies have been around and much longer. But also when it's being used, when they're using that raw power to, I would say attack, you know, I, I don't want to like abstract the idea of an attack, but I think when you're removing people's ability to express themselves for questionable reasons, I think that's a certain form of an attack. An attack on free speech, you could say. Um, you know, so it's not, it's not just as simple as these institutions and corporations believing the same thing as you. It's also that they are a weapon to be used against people. And, and here I am, like, really questioning some of these words that I use, where it's like weapon, attack, because I don't want to get into that game of abstracting terms to mean something other than what they mean. But it's hard not to. And I understand that. When people say violence and hatred or this or that, and you look at it and you say, it sure doesn't seem like violence and hatred. You know, I'm realizing how easy it is to do that. And so, you know, I think you have to be creative. I think you have to think about what words you use. But I know I'm using hyperbole. I I know that I'm using weapon as a metaphor. Whereas what I see from definitely the left is terms like violence, are they're not used metaphorically. They see these things as a form of literal violence, which it's not. Of course, it's not. And, you know, with all this, you know, I'm surrounded by the left. I have been for a very long time. And so in that way, I do have a sort of bias that comes from simply being surrounded. And, and, you know, if I was in an environment where I was surrounded by, let's say, the evangelical right, I would probably be a little harsher toward them. And I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I deal with them with padded gloves either. I feel that when I have cause to criticize them, I do, and I have. And I guess that's another point, too, is that none of these views are new to me. I would say my values have stayed very consistent going to back going back to when I was an older teenager to my late teens. I think the difference is that while my values have stayed the same, I do think I've improved at upholding my values, at living in accordance with my values. 
And I'm open to my values changing, and some of them have, but I think my values, especially with regard to free speech and free speech absolutism, that has stayed very consistent. And I'm an artist. You know, at some point, like I, I used to dance around the term artist, but at this point, I just say it's easy, it's too hard to come up with some paragraph explanation for what I do. I'm an artist. Oh, well. You know, is it pretentious to call yourself an artist? Yeah. It's even more pretentious to come up with some lofty explanation to avoid calling yourself an artist. I realize that, so I just call myself an artist. But what blows my mind is the number of artists who encourage censorship. That blows my mind. Because you should know better than anyone. You know, blasphemy laws. I mean, you look at someone like Mike Diana and like what he went through. And it's just like... You know, you should know better than anyone how this can play out and how quickly the tide can change and how it has already changed in our lifetime where, you know, I came of age during the Bush era. I was a teenager, a young adult during the Bush era where the evangelical right had raw power that they were using to censor people. And so I. I've stayed the same. My values have stayed the same regardless of who is exercising that raw power. And the joy that people have when that raw power is used to shut down their alleged enemies is not a pure joy. It is not a pure joy. It is a tainted joy. And if they were to examine that joy closely, they would see little particles of shit floating in it. I don't, and, and I don't mean, uh, I don't mean shit shit. I mean like weird indescribable shit that just makes you, it's like when you see something floating in a drink, in a glass of water that you have and you can't quite make, make out what it is. It's kind of like that where it's just like, what is this? And you just feel like whatever you're drinking is tainted a little bit. And for all you know, it came from your own mouth. (laughs) You know, sometimes that happens. Where it's like, oh, like something came from my mouth. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I've always been a free speech absolutist. To me, that's, you know, just an obvious th- quality about me. And, you know, yeah, I, I have some reservations sometimes, you know, investing in a Facebook post. Because I can be long-winded. I can type long things out. But I'm not afraid to do that, you know, just to express myself. You know, it it is embarrassing, but it's also not for me. Because to me, as a pagan who believes in using every tool available, if it feels right, I see these things the same way. You know, I had an experience years ago, speaking of being an artist, where I ran into an old, you know, kind of a friend. And uh, we were at a bar some years back, quite a few years back, probably 2014, I don't know. He's somebody that I'd played music with briefly, and he's an artist too. And we were talking about art, and he he wanted to see like what drawings I had done. And so I, I pulled out my phone, and I showed him a couple of drawings. And he asked me, like, oh, what are you doing with these? He asked me, like, what are you doing with this art? And I said, I pretty much just post it to Facebook. And I said that knowing full well what I was saying. I I said that completely self-aware of the fact that that was uncool. And I, because I embrace being uncool sometimes. And he said, that sucks. He kind of laughed and he was like, that sucks. And he's a guy who like, he's, he's a talented artist himself. And he, 
He does like comic books and zines of his art, physical media. But I take a certain pride in just being like, you know, hey, whatever, post it online. I have a website too. I've made prints. You know, it's like there's not any one ideal way to present these things. And, you know, if we had gone back a few hundred years and uh, if we'd been talking about our art and he goes, well, what do you do with your art? And I said, oh, I, I make prints. He might have said, oh, that sucks. Oh, you, you put your art on paper? And that might have happened like in the caveman era. You know, where it's like people had gotten used to, or not the caveman era, but it's like the transition between carving things into stone, carving things into wood versus drawing things on paper. If he had been like, well, what do you do with your art? And I said, oh, I, uh, I draw it on paper. Meanwhile, he only, you know, carves things into rock walls. He might have said, that sucks. I see that all as the same thing. And yeah, there's something to be said for physical media. I completely understand it. But it's the same thing for me with like expressing opinions, any of that, where I don't see the platform, I don't see the medium as the be-all, end-all. And sometimes I take a certain pride in using an uncool platform. Sometimes I take a certain pride in that. Um, but anyway, so, so, you know, I've been, yeah, I've been in a heightened state. Some would call it a manic state, but it's interesting because, you know, you really see where people become stooges of authoritarianism if they feel it suits them. If they feel that that raw power works in their favor, people become stooges for authoritarianism really quickly. And this is important to remember because it's not just that people on the left are embracing censorship and authoritarianism when it suits them. It's that if the right were to gain cultural power again, we would see the same thing play out. And I would be saying the same thing because I've said it. I have not changed on this. I, I While I, I may be contradictory, hypocritical, inconsistent in some ways in my life, this is a subject that I've never been inconsistent on. I have always been 100 in, 180%. Why not 200%? I don't know. Uh, I've always been 180% consistent when it comes to free speech absolutism. And that's informed in large part as someone who is an artist myself, as well as a fan of art. And I've had, you know, there, there are forces at work that try to prevent me from indulging in certain art. There is art that I'm into that is subversive and controversial and when there are attempts to censor that, it comes from a place of assuming what I am getting out of it. Like if something is, like there's right-wing music that I like. And uh, there have been attempts to censor that. There have been attempts to prevent people from consuming that, from buying it, from streaming it online. And they are assuming what I get out of that. As someone who enjoys that kind of thing, as well, and I, and I enjoy other things as well. You know, it's not like that's the only thing that I'm interested in, but it, that shouldn't even matter, even if it was the only thing I'm interested in, even if I agree 100% with it. The point is, is that they are assuming something about me. And I guess a good comparison would be if I were into horror movies, which I'm not, I, I am 100%, not 180%, I'm 100% indifferent 
to horror movies. Never been a fan. I'm a squeamish person, so I don't enjoy the violence. I'm not excited by it. I think horror movies are cool. I'm glad they exist, but I'm not a fan. Even though I think they're cool, they actually don't appeal to me in any way whatsoever. But you wouldn't assume that someone watches horror movies because they're a pervert and a would-be serial killer. Even though perverts and would-be serial killers do like horror movies. Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie was The Exorcist 3. Another one of his favorite movies was Star Wars. And you know who his favorite character was? And I, I kid you not, Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite character was the Emperor. And you know someone's fucked up if they watch Star Wars and think, you know who's cool? The Emperor. And this is something I didn't find out. Despite knowing a lot about Jeffrey Dahmer back in my true crime days, I didn't find out that he was a huge Star Wars fan who loved the Emperor until much later. And he actually got contacts. He got yellow contacts to look like the demon from the exorcist and also to look like the emperor. And he, he even said that he liked the emperor in star Wars because of the control that the emperor had on other people. And if you're familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer, one of his big things was he wanted to have full control over somebody, which is why he tried to turn that boy into a zombie. He drilled a hole in his head and tried to put acid into the kid's brain so that he could basically have a sex zombie. Uh, so, uh, you know, yeah, you know, if somebody's into the emperor, that <laughs> something's wrong with them. But the point is, is that he was a horror movie fan, but he was also a Star Wars fan. So somebody who's perverted, somebody who has very dark thoughts, it doesn't actually matter whether they have access to horror movies or not, because they're going to watch Star Wars and find something in that that they like. You know, so it actually doesn't matter. And if you think that, you know, oh, if Jeffrey Dahmer had never watched The Exorcist 3, he never would have been a killer. Trust me, that guy would have found something. You know, dangerous people have a certain ingenuity to them. They will find a way, which is why censorship is so stupid. It is so stupid. And it's also stupid because it, it not only assumes what someone is getting out of something. Like, it's assuming that, oh, you listen to death metal and watch horror movies because you love murder and you want to murder people. And if we prevent you from watching that, if we prevent you from watching horror movies and listening to death metal, you're never going to do that thing. No, people are going to find a way. And... uh it's not just that it assumes what somebody is getting out of something. It also assumes that people are so stupid that they are so susceptible to somebody else's expression that they have to be stopped from ever hearing it. And again, that gets back into the idea that if you prevent someone from hearing an idea, if that idea is truly relevant, it is going to be recreated. And you think about something like neo-Nazism and that imp or, or just Nazism it doesn't have to be neo-Nazism, uh, but that idea of Nazism, which is far more complex than it's been made out to be, and you would ha actually have to study it to understand it, which most haven't done and are unwilling to do, because if you study Nazism and actually try to understand it, somebody's going to call you a Nazi for doing that. You know, that's the, that's the reality that we live with. I mean, it was like I spent years studying true crime, and of course I would get these jokes like, oh, maybe you're a serial killer. 
maybe you're a serial killer. Ha ha. You know, it's like people would say shit like that. And now we live in an age where like all young women are just sitting there and, and older women too. But like young women are just sitting there listening to serial killer podcasts. Older women are sitting around watching forensic shows. My mom was super into that. And so it's funny to me that like the mainstream has become that, especially with women. But, uh, you know, I used to get those jokes when people knew that I was interested in serial killers. Like, maybe you're a serial killer. Ha ha ha. I'm half joking. <laughs> you know, people would say shit like that. And it's like, it's the same thing. Like, I have a book. It's, it's a big, uh, it's like a big, thick biography of Hitler. Am I a Nazi for reading that, for being interested in that? I bought it with my Jewish girlfriend. She didn't give a shit years and years ago. And, uh, I, I shouldn't even have to say that I bought it with my Jewish girlfriend. I shouldn't even have to say that, but yet we do have to throw in these disclaimers. And you know, that's actually a funny joke. Cause I bought both. It was at an antique store. They had this big book about Hitler, a biography. And I bought that and a crucifix. And as I went up to the cash register, I had this big biography of Hitler with Jesus on the cross on top of it. And and that was just fun. You know, it's fun to walk up there with that. But I told that to a friend and he was, and I, and I told him about like my Jewish girlfriend being with me. And he was like, you, you must've really hated her. Cause it's like, uh, it's like not just a book about Hitler, but a, a Jesus on the cross. Meanwhile, she's Jewish. It's like double, you know, it's, it's like double, uh, double the fun, but you know, I'm interested in that stuff. And the more that I learn about that stuff, the more I understand it. And in understanding it, you know, the less likely I am to be attracted to it, really. You know, and, and there's an assumption, though, that people are so stupid, that the masses are so stupid, you have to prevent them from being exposed to an idea. Otherwise, they'll embrace it. And to me, what I have to say in response to that is, if you're worried about people buying into an idea come up with a stronger argument your argument should be so strong should be so tight that you don't have to worry about censoring other people's arguments because your argument for what you believe is so strong that people can't help but acknowledge it people can't help but be attracted to it but that hasn't happened people would rather say you're stupid because you don't agree with me. And when you say that, what you communicate to them is, if I have my way, you're going to suffer. And nobody's going to be attracted by that. And nobody's attracted by the idea of, you can't listen to this. You can't hear this. You can't see this. Because you're too stupid and you might believe it. That communicates to me that that thing isn't the problem, but that the person saying that is the problem, the person enforcing that is the problem. I mean, we see that psychology with children and parents. While it's good for parents to have, you know, to discipline their children and to have rules, and I think being strict in certain ways is important, we see it where, you know, the harder a parent pushes, the more a parent forces a child to do something or not do something or doesn't allow them to do something, we see where the kid is that much more attracted to it. And that's not just kids, it's, it's everybody. When you're told you can't do something, that's exactly what somebody wants to do. So instead, just make a convincing argument. Make a much more convincing argument. And that's something the left has been terrible at. 
The left has been absolutely terrible at making a convincing argument, and as a result, they're trying to wield raw power. So I don't know, you know, this end, here we are 40 minutes in, and this could be a three-hour episode. I, I'm just bursting. And, you know, you can see, too, where people are at, because, you know, I was posting this stuff, this this anti-censorship, this free speech stuff on online, and, you know, this, I guess, you know, this old friend, she was like, who I used to drink with, she was like, did you start drinking again? And I was like, no, you know, I haven't drank for over three years. But that just shows you how people will insult you. And I'm not offended. It's a very rude thing to ask publicly, to publicly respond to something that I said that was, you know, not to toot my own horn, but what I said was well thought out. And it wasn't like it was riddled with typos. It was a a well, whether you agree or disagree with what I said was well constructed. And I'll give myself that credit. And to respond to that with, did you start drinking again? That's insulting. And I'm not offended. I couldn't give a shit. To me, it's funny because this person, this, this particular person has a reputation for being insulting. And, uh, so I'm not offended, but it's like, oh yeah, you know, because I expressed a view that you don't agree with, you're going to ask me if I'm drinking again. And I've had absolutely, like I said, I'm very excited right now. Excited in the most general way, like where it's not necessarily wholly positive, but it's not negative either. It's just a general excitement. Some would call it a manic state, but I'm distancing myself from that because I'm not, because I I don't, there's no diagnosis for me. I'm not bipolar. I'm not manic depressive. I'm distancing myself from calling it a manic state and just saying I'm excited. There's a lot going on in the world, and these events have put me in a state of mind where I'm just bursting at the seams with thought. And, you know, I I have serious concerns about the way things are going because I don't agree with it, because I'm not on the left. And even saying you're not on the left to people on the left right now is seen as some kind of betrayal. And I'm not a centrist. I'm not a moderate. I'm not sitting between two extremes trying to balance them. I simply exist in the world. I interpret it. And some things I believe fall on one end of the spectrum or the other. And that's important to remember because we've gotten so lost in this idea of gray areas, which are real. There's a whole spectrum, and that includes the gray areas in between black and white. But black and white still exist, too. You know, you can't forget that in all of this. Right and wrong exist. It doesn't mean everything falls into right or everything falls into wrong. But, you know, you can't forget that right and wrong exist, too. And getting away from right and wrong, because I don't think you should look at black and white necessarily as right and wrong, just one end of the spectrum or the other, one extreme or the other. And so those extremes exist, and sometimes those extremes are necessary. However, you know, the gray area is there too. And it's funny because I was talking to this online. I was talking about this online with a girl that I went to junior high with who I haven't talked, I haven't seen in 20 years. And this is why it doesn't feel completely in vain if I go on a Facebook rant. Because people come out of the woodwork and they're like, you know what, I'm on the same page with you. Maybe they even offer some of their own insight. It's not a it's not a feedback loop. But this girl, she was Australian. I went to junior high and high school with her. She was Australian. I think she moved back to Australia later on. 
I think she has kids now. I don't even know. I haven't I haven't kept up with her, but we're connected on this crazy immaterial you know, internet world. And it turns out she's totally on the same page and and we were talking about this and I was saying to her you know, when you censor somebody you get rid of one extreme or, or something that you think is an extreme. And in doing that, the middle ground becomes the new extreme, whereas the spectrum used to be black to white with a whole spectrum of gray in between. When you lop off, say, the black side, you turn that middle area, you turn the, the gray, the middle gray into the new black. And if you've ever looked at a, a gradient, a G-R-E-Y-dient. You know, if you look at, at a, a black and white gradient with a whole spectrum of gray, it's interesting where if you're on the light end, something that is just sort of a medium gray looks extremely dark. Compared to the white end, gray looks very dark, especially if you cut off the black end. But you want to be able to see that. You want to be able to see gray as gray because I mean there are some times where something looks black to you because you've been staring at brightness something looks completely black but if you were to hold it up to actual black you find out oh hey it's dark gray and there's a lot of things like that and when you censor you lose that perspective you you lose the ability to recognize that but it's actually funny that 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 girl the Australian girl who I went to junior high with came out of the woodwork because she was maybe one of the only people at that time when we were in junior high who was into punk. I think she was one of the only people I knew. And that was, I think, why we were friends. We were both into punk. And my punk rock phase was very short. Punk rock was not for me. You know, and sure, there are exceptions. Punk rock is not for me. There are exceptions. There's a few punk bands I still like, you know, but punk rock was not for me. But it's funny that she is very much on the same page with politics and all of this, considering we were the only punk kids when we were 15. We were the only people in our grade, in our, in, probably in our entire school at that point, who were into punk. And that's funny to me that now we are both very critical of the left, the pseudo-rebellious left. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that the two kids, the two only... The, we were the only people who were into punk at that age. And now we're opposed to what the left is doing. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that we both rebelled in that way when nobody else was rebelling in that way. And now we see things for what they are. I don't think it's a coincidence that she and I somehow, after years of not having any contact, ended up with a very similar perspective. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And I think what led us, what attracted us to punk when we were 15, I think is what attracted us to the way we see the world now. And, it, and that's why I know it's not completely in vain to make a Facebook rant. Because you end up connecting with people and you say, oh, it, you know, this is unexpected. This is nice. And what's really weird about all this, and I guess this episode has been just about free speech and censorship and all that, which I think was just inevitable because I don't have anything else to talk about. Um, but another friend of mine said to me, you know, thank you for putting yourself out there. 
And that kind of hit me because I was like, I don't feel like I'm saying anything controversial. What I'm saying, by saying I'm a free speech absolutist, I don't believe there's anything truly fundamentally controversial about that. If that seems controversial, it's in your own head. It's your own psychosis that is causing you to think a free speech absolutist is the controversial one. Because people hear free speech absolutist and they think that that's an endorsement. You know, Donald Trumpsfeld is not the hill that I'm going to die on. I'm going to lay down on his back and die. His back is a giant hill. We call this Trumpsfeld Hill. No, Donald Trumpsfeld is not the hill that I'm going to die on. This isn't about one singular event. And making it about one singular event is a distortion or it's naivety. Making free speech about one single instance, because you can always justify a single instance of censorship. You can always find a justification for it. And so when you make it about that, you're distorting the point. Or you're naive. One or the other. Maybe both. Naive distortion. Hey, come check out my new band. We're called Naive Distortion. All of our lyrics are about censoring people. Uh, Naive Distortion is my punk band. We're like Social Distortion. (laughs) We're a Social Distortion cover band, except all of our lyrics are about censorship, pro-censorship. Because that's where we're at. The the so-called punks are pro-censorship. It's amazing. And so, you know, you see where this girl, who was the only other so-called punk when we were that age... We're still both against censorship. At that time, being a punk was opposed to censorship. And I I was never a punk. But, you know, I wore punk shirts. I had a couple punk shirts and things like that. But, you know, it's funny to think back and be like, oh, we were both these kids into punk. And we actually have the same values we probably had then. It's just that everything else has changed. The wind has blown everything else in different directions. You know, whereas now, you know, as much as I hate to put it this way, I think being punk now is being a little more sympathetic to the right. You know, and it's not to say I don't consider myself right wing and that's not me being a fence sitter. That's not me being um, that's not me being afraid to commit myself. I just I I would not be honest if I were to say I'm conservative, because if I were to say that to a conservative, they would look at my values. They would look at what I stand for and they would be like, you're not a conservative at all. You're not a conservative at all. They would feel that way about me. Because, again, it's like the spectrum of black to white with gray in between, you know, while to somebody who's on the radical left today, which is increasingly just becoming the mainstream. I mean, it is. The radical left is the mainstream. When every corporation and institution agrees with you, you are not a radical. You are at the very center. You are as mainstream as it gets. But it's that sort of thing where it's like something that seems black when you're staring at the bright white turns out is actually gray. And, and, you know, that's what, one reason why I would never try to present myself as an actual conservative, because the reality is, while I might look conservative when you compare me to the modern left, 
if you were to put me in a group where I'm surrounded by the evangelical right, I would look pretty far left without even changing. I, I wouldn't even have to change anything about myself. With my values being exactly as they are, I would probably seem fairly liberal if I were around a bunch of fundamentalist evangelicals. Even though I read the Bible. Even though I read the Bible. You know, that's just kind of how things work, and that's how the spectrum works, and that's how contrast works. Is I would I would probably contrast with them as much as I do the left, but... You know that, and that's kind of where we're at. Where if you don't explicitly agree with the right or the left, you seem like you exist on the opposite end. You know, if you don't explicitly agree with the far left, you're a fascist neo-Nazi. If you don't explicitly agree with the far right, you're a bleeding heart commie. And so, I'm not a fence sitter. I'm not a moderate, but I think that I contrast with them because I'm not invested in either side completely because my experience is not one that allows me to invest completely. And I would rather not talk about politics. And in fact, I really haven't even talked about politics. Even in this episode here, even though I mention words like right and left, I really haven't said anything that is inherently political. But yet being a free speech absolutist in, you know, 1999 would have made you a leftist. Being a free speech absolutist in 2020 makes you a conservative. That just shows you something. That I have not blown in the wind, but everything else has been completely windswept. And while my values haven't changed, I've made more of an effort to live up to my values. And that's different from changing your values. Making an effort to live up to your values, to follow your values closer... You know, that is different than your values changing. And not that I'm afraid of my values changing. I'm not afraid of being wrong. And I, in fact, enjoy being wrong because I think there's a torment to being right. In the same way that I think someone should feel tormented to censor somebody, even if it is necessary censorship, I think there is a certain torment to being right. And I don't mean right wing, I mean correct. Because I know, like, when I've been in relationships... You know, when you get in an argument and you win, if, if you can even use that word. But when I've won an argument with a girlfriend or anything like that, I feel pretty sick. I feel pretty low. Even if I know, even if like, even if I know that I had to prove my point, I still feel pretty sick about it. I don't like it. And that's good. I'm glad I feel that way. Because if I didn't feel that way, I would be even more insufferable than I am now. I would be trying to exercise raw power on other people. But, you know, one thing I will say for myself, and, you know, I might sound high on myself, but it is what it is. I'm also, I'm very harsh on myself. I'm very critical of myself. But one thing I will say is that I don't think anybody has any room to criticize my values. I don't think that any reasonable, rational person has any right. I mean, they have the right because I, I want them to express themselves. Like when that, uh, when that person, you know, said to me, like, did you start drinking again? When she asked me that publicly, I thought about deleting it. It crossed my mind. I was like, you know, that's insulting. I thought about getting mad. 
even though I didn't feel mad, I thought about just as kind of like a, oh, well, that's what's funny is when I saw that, when she asked me if I started drinking again, which is really insulting, I thought about going through the motions of being insulted, but I didn't actually feel insulted because I know what this person is like. And I'm not saying that as an insult. I just know that she's belligerent and she was probably drunk herself. And I thought about saying something insulting in return, but I didn't. I handled it with, you know, a good nature. And because uh, that's preferable. That is always preferable. I try to be good natured. Even when somebody says something insulting, I try to remember how that person operates. And also, I know that nothing good can come of it. Nothing good can come from escalating that. Nothing good can come from me trading insults with somebody. I don't remember the last time that I got into a a fight with somebody where we traded insults. I've gotten into arguments, but I don't remember the time that I got into ad hominem. I don't remember a time when, you know, I was actually insulting somebody. Like I, I said some mean things to my friend, you know, a month ago about something we were doing together, but it wasn't, it wasn't like. You know, I didn't, I didn't say anything ad hominem. I didn't use any pejoratives. I was just kind of harsh. I was a little harsher than I needed to be with somebody who didn't deserve that sort of harsh treatment. But in terms of like trading insults, you know, I just, I was like, oh, I don't need to pretend that I'm offended because that's what I would have had to have done in response to her. But anyway, you know, it, it just, here we are. I'm excited in a way because I think a lot of concerns that I've had over the years are being made a reality. And even though I think that's a negative reality, and I think there's going to be a lot of pain and potentially serious conflict, the likes of which we have never seen. And I'm a hopeful person. While I'm prone to cynicism... I'm a hopeful person, especially in recent years. I, I, you know, I see the upside. And I believe in ascendant thinking and ascendant living. And even if you dip down, even if you go through a catabasis, even if you enter the valley for a little while, even if you have to stare down into the abyss for a second, you know, I think, you know, going for that upward incline, heading upwards whenever possible, do it. That said... I think we're potentially looking at war and pain. Because that's the amazing thing about censorship is when people justify censorship, you know, all you have to do is look at history to see that censorship is in a long-term permanent relationship with war and pain. They go together. They go together and they very rarely stray from each other. So uh, when you invite censorship, when you encourage censorship, typically you also encourage war and pain, although as, you know, as governments uh, have displayed throughout history, as those in power have displayed, when censorship is readily accepted, they can easily hide that war and pain. They can easily hide atrocity because the public has already accepted censorship. So that's what's scary about it is that people may not see atrocity. People may not even see it because they've already allowed for censorship. And when you allow for censorship, those in power say, cha-ching, you know, they're, they're happy. 
because they're not going to get as much pushback from the public. And, and I mean, we've seen that over the last year. We've seen where this is why I can't be too mad at people because people have had this severe reaction to what happened at the Capitol, and I'm not happy with it. I am not happy with what those people did. I'm also not happy with what people did over the summer. And I believe that it has to be talked about. Those two things have to be talked about together. And in fact, what happened over the summer was far more widespread, far more damaging. And it doesn't matter what the justification is. You know, what happened to the Capitol, if that was spread out over months, and if it happened every night like it did in Portland... You know, it would just I can't even imagine what the response would be right now. But because the institutions supported what happened over the summer, because the media covered it up and they did. There was a media blackout. I mean, there was the footage, I think it was on CNN, where there was a a reporter saying it was a mostly peaceful protest. And behind him, there was a burning building. And it's just like, you can't make that up. You can't even stage that. It's almost like that's designed to be as insulting as possible. And so there's a hypocrisy in demonizing one group for behaving a certain way while letting another off the hook, which is why I don't let anybody off the hook. And, you know, I'll admit there's something really striking about seeing people inside the Capitol or whatever it was, the Senate building. I don't even know what's what. I think most people probably don't know. All these people who are like, they're inside the Capitol. That's a sacred place. It's like, I don't even know what's what. I don't even know if the Senate meets in the Capitol. I wouldn't be able to tell you. But there was something striking about seeing a guy dressed like a berserker in that building. Like my friend Miles said, he looks like a burning man. You know, it's like, it's like he, he looks like a, you know, looks like burning man or something. And he's right. He looks like a LARPer. But there is also something striking about that visual. In the same way I mentioned recently, there was something striking about the visual in Minneapolis last May where the the police precinct was on fire. It was a striking visual. That doesn't mean I support it. I can say that something is a striking visual without supporting it. I can say that something is a striking visual while condemning it even. A striking visual is a striking visual. Like I can look at concentration camp footage and say that's a striking visual what that represents. And that gets back into like, you don't know what I'm getting out of something. You don't know what I'm getting out of like art, for example. Like I can appreciate art and say it's a striking visual, even if it doesn't capture something that makes me feel good. Like does a cannibal corpse, I've never been a huge cannibal corpse fan at all. You know, I'm, I'm, I kind of skipped over them, even though I was really into death metal when I was like 16 and still listen to it, you know, I, I kind of skipped over Cannibal Corpse, but just to use them as a, uh, an easy example, it's like if I'm listening to Cannibal Corpse, that doesn't mean I, I believe the subject matter is pleasant or agreeable. You don't know what I'm getting out of that. You don't, you have no idea. And what's funny is people can accept that. Like death metal isn't controversial with the left. Horror movies aren't controversial. You know, many leftists are into that stuff. But if it strays into, say, like, NSBM, people are going to say, this should be illegal. And it's like, 
how do you know that somebody isn't into NSBM in the same way that they're into murderous death metal? It, it involves atrocity either way. Who are you to say what's what? And who are you to say what a given individual is getting out of that thing? And I guess the assumption is that people are too stupid to decide for themselves. People are too stupid to watch horror movies without killing people. People are too stupid to watch horror movies without killing. You know, that's the same sort of attitude. And that's what the the evangelical right was like. It's like, you can't sell Slayer albums in Walmart. Walmart should not sell a Slayer CD. It's the same sort of logic. Who are you to decide, you know, what marketplace music should be sold in you know it's that kind of thing and and, you know, and there is an argument to be made for like companies should have the right to decide what they give a platform to there is an argument for that but one of the issues with the social media stuff is that we don't quite understand what these things are like a, like the guy I was talking to kind of debating with respectfully and I really do respect his points I really do respect his outlook he was a gentleman and that's all I ask all I ask from people is be a gentleman, be a gentle woman. That's all I ask from people. And a lot of people are incapable of that right now. Uh, but, you know, he was saying it's house rules. It's their terms of service. But like I said, the problem is they're inconsistent with their terms of service. And the way that they interpret violations of that terms of service are inconsistent and let's say very imaginative in some cases, when they are opposed to somebody's way of being and way of thinking, they can get very imaginative in their interpretation of what someone says. And that's what we saw recently with Trumpsfeld. And the reality is, too, people will try to pin you down. Because I was much more defensive of Donald Trumpsfeld publicly than I've ever been before. I've never I've really actually never said anything about him at all on my Facebook account. I don't believe I've ever said anything about him, but I was defensive of him being banned or I, I was, you know, I was defending him with regard to this banning, but again, it's not even about him. And to, and the, the problem though is the stooges of censorship, the stooges of authoritarianism will always pin you down to that one example because I defended Donald Trumpsfeld in this instance their response is, oh, you must be a Trump supporter, aren't you? Oh, are you a Trumpsfeld supporter? You know, that's where they come from, and they pin you down that way. And you know what? I am defending Donald Trumpsfeld. He's not the hill that I'm going to die on, but he's part of that hill. I'm part of that hill. You're part of that hill. We are all part of that hill, and I would expect the same defense for me, and I would give the same defense to you. And so it's not about Trump's felon. It's not about him. Like, I don't need to defend a guy who's that famous. I don't need to defend a guy who is that powerful. That's not in my interest. And actually, if I were acting purely in my interest, if I were being self-interested right now, I would probably get online and I would say, yeah, they banned the, they banned the bastard. I'm so glad they got rid of him. 
I'm so glad they censored the fascist Trumpsfeld. You know, I, if I were acting in my self-interest, I would say that because that would communicate to the people seeking power and who, in my opinion, have power. That would communicate to them that I'm their stooge. So if I were a purely self-interested person, I would just be uh, agreeing with everyone. I would be agreeing with everyone, but I can't in good conscience do that. I cannot in good conscience do that, and I won't. And in a way, I'm excited because it's going to be much more obvious where the power is now. Because even though Trumpsfeld has been in office the last four years, and there's been a, you know, a Republican Senate majority, here we are getting very political, I know, I know my stuff, you know, the cultural power has very much been on the left, and it typically is. It typically is, at least in the last 15 years, at least since Bush. I would say since Bush got out of office, the cultural power has very much been on the left. Um, but you can see where, like, when the Dixie Chicks got in trouble for speaking out against Bush, or when people, when it was controversial to speak out against the Iraq War, you know, I would be saying the same things now about that if that were what, if that was what was going on. And I did feel that way then. You know, I did speak out about that. You know, the platforms were different. Things weren't as connected as they were. You weren't connected to every single person you've ever known, including the Australian girl that I went to junior high with. You know, you weren't connected to all the same people in 2006 or whatever year, 2004, you know, whatever year that was. I don't know what year the Dixie Chicks, you know, you know, were controversial. Um, I don't know what year the Dixie Chicks were controversial. I think they're called the Chicks now, which just tells you everything. The fact that they can't even call themselves the Dixie Chicks. But, uh, you know, the, you know I, I said the same thing then. I felt the same way. The way I've expressed myself, the way I've felt on this has been consistent. So, uh, you know, but I am kind of excited because I think it's that much more clear who has the power. What disturbs me is how many people are stooges. How many people just blindly support that power because they think it's in their favor? And it gets into this right side of history thing. And as I often say these days, go to a cemetery. Go to a cemetery and look around because that's the right side of history. You know, the more self-righteous, I mean, that's all there really is. There's no right side of history. There is only the self-righteous side of history. Because if you think that you are absolutely right, right now, and that history is going to look back favorably upon you, flip through a history book. Chances are, like, if you read about wars, if you read about, like, warfare during the Roman era, during the Roman Empire, you're not even going to understand what they were fighting about. And people are going to look back at us the same way. People are going to look back at the little conflicts, and, and they're only going to see the cream. Like, they're only going to see the cream at the top. Like, they're not going to see all of the little nuances. They're only going to see whatever floats to the top. So that's important to remember. But they're not going to see any nuances. And the idea that you know what the future is going... You know, the idea that you know how the future is going to reflect on you is just nonsense. And it's extremely self-righteous. Go to a cemetery. Go to a cemetery... And, you know, I, 
I shared something related to this earlier, but so I'm reiterating, reiterating myself, but I don't say this with any nihilism in mind. I'm not saying this as some sort of like Celtic frost, hellhammer, only death is real because you should do what you feel is right. You should try to improve the world around you. You should try to improve yourself. You should use your judgment to try to do the right thing when possible. But to think that there's a right side of history, it, it's, what that is, it's contemporary narcissism. And I can tell you that everyone throughout history believed that they were on the right side of history. Do you believe that there are significant groups of people throughout history who said, oh yeah, we are the orcs from Mordor. We are the bad guys, and we're going to deliberately do bad guy things. We're going to do bad guy things. Do you think that that's what people in history did? Do you think that that's what the Nazis did in World War II? Do you think that they were thinking, let's be as bad as possible? No, they believed they were on the right side of history as well. So that should tell you something. That should tell you that there's always a degree of contemporary narcissism behind every action, especially when it involves forcing your way. So go to a cemetery. If you want to understand what the right side of history is, go to a cemetery and look around and try to figure out what those people's beliefs were. Go to a cemetery, look around, try to find out who was on the right side of history there. Do a little investigation. I'm sure that you'll have tons of success. You know, rub your fingers along the the stone of their grave markers like Braille. There's all this hidden Braille on the surface of a tombstone that's going to tell you who was on the right side of history. Nope. You'll learn everything you need to know just by going there. So thinking that you are on the right side of history, good luck with that. You're lucky if you'll be remembered. You're lucky if history will reflect on your beliefs favorably. Because history makes a fool out of everybody. History truly makes a fool out of everybody. Assuming history is even told truthfully. And uh, that's the issue with censorship. Because the past gets censored too. And you might think you're on the right side of history today. You're lucky if they even tell your story correctly. You're lucky if they even understand your story. I mean, I don't expect that. I think I feel like people have a hard enough understanding where I'm coming from today. Even when I break it down rationally and logically, they ask me, did you start drinking again? You know, give me a break. I mean, that's one person. But still, it's like you're lucky if people even understand you when you explain yourself clearly today. So the idea that anybody is going to understand anything about you or your beliefs Because let's get beyond our own individual selves. And even if you think you're standing up for a system of belief that is important and is virtuous, you're lucky if it's even understood at all in 100 years, 200 years, 50 years. So keep that in mind if you're one of these people, which, again, I don't expect from anybody anybody who's going to listen to this show. I do not expect you to be one of these people who thinks you're on the right side of history or is pro-censorship. I don't expect anybody who hears this at this point. Um, but uh, just something to consider. You know, all of this, I feel like I end every episode with that. 
kind of become a slogan. Just something to consider. Something to take to heart. I'm going to give this a little extra emphasis today. Not just something to consider. Something to take to heart whether you agree or disagree with me. And if you disagree with me, good. I want that. I want pushback. I want counterpoint. I want a spectrum. Black, white, gray, different shades of gray. I want it all. We need it all. And we shouldn't chop any part of that off. We should not chop any part of the spectrum off if we can help it. And if we have to, if it's absolutely necessary to chop any part of the spectrum off, we should do so with so much reservation. And it should actually torture us. It should actually torture you to do that. You know, to go back to the in-your-house example, in-your-house, it's like the old WWF pay-per-views, in-your-house is what they were called. You know, if you want to go with the, in my opinion, uh, poor example, poor analogy of being like, oh, well, if someone comes into your house and insults your children, you should have the right to throw them out. And that's a perfect comparison for Twitter. You know, if you do even want to stick to that, Even if you have to throw somebody out of your house, it's going to bother you for the rest of the night. Even if if somebody came into your house and insulted your children and you threw them outside, that's going to torment you. The whole situation is going to torment you. And that's exactly how you should feel whenever somebody gets censored. Even if you yourself didn't do the censoring. Anytime another human being gets censored, you should be tormented. You should feel a certain dilemma. Even if you know it was the right thing to do, it should not be a cause of celebration. Because when you censor somebody, you are potentially considering to you're you're potentially contributing to an act of misanthropy. Because the idea of censoring another person's perspective because you think people are too stupid to hear it. You think people are too stupid to hear it and respond responsibly to that. That is misanthropy. That is true blue misanthropy. Because anytime you think that people are too stupid, anytime you think people are idiots who can't handle an idea on their own terms, you communicate that you are a misanthrope. And if you think that they need your guiding hand, if you think that they need you to guide them in the right direction, well, that just communicates to them and certainly to me that you are not to be trusted with any power. So here we are looking at a future. And I can tell you, I don't trust anybody with this raw power that they are exercising. Because I believe it comes from a place of misanthropy. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land 
to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 